show us Christ. Good morning, Pacific Hope Church. By way of introduction to this morning's text, many of you are aware and have been praying that we will deal with a difficult topic from God's word this morning. As you have prayed for me, I'll give God the glory by saying he answered the prayers of the saints in a very effective way. You see, I had a very busy week. God appointed that I would get selected for jury duty this week, which meant I had an entire day sitting in an air-conditioned courtroom to study God's word. And if you're looking for an effective way to not get picked for a jury, for a jury you can take a book entitled Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. Not only will they not pick you for a jury, but no one will speak to you. <clears throat> so, to God be the glory in all of this. For this reason, we're going to begin this morning's examination of the text, looking first at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, which will direct our hearts and minds to the supremacy of Christ. And then we'll jump back in and look at verses 3 through 6 and be real with one another based on what God says to us through his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll pray. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Father God, we come together this morning, sinners in need of grace, saints who have received your mercy, and some of us perhaps needing an encounter with you that you would bring us to repentance and salvation for the first time. Father God, we pray that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, the supreme example, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the only one through whom there is salvation. May you grant us wisdom to hear from your word this morning, to use it to direct our own lives and to direct the lives of our families in a way that honor you, the head of this church. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. The first two verses of this chapter are connected very much to where we left off last week. Looking at the, the theme of our conduct the things that we were supposed to put off and the things that we're supposed to put on. The way that we are not supposed to walk, verse 17 of chapter 4 told us, Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So we've been told how we shouldn't walk, and now in these verses, we're going to be reminded of how we should walk. For this reason, it's important to notice the supremacy of Christ. Our example isn't, don't live like these people, live a little bit better than these people. Our standard is Christ. We also have to understand who's being addressed in this precious passage. I'd like to point out the back half of, of verse one of chapter five. It says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Now we began this book with Paul saying, this is written to the saints at Ephesus. The title of today's sermon will also give you a bit of a clue that this is about as is proper among saints. This is addressed to saints. But the word that Paul uses here is, is very interesting. He uses the word beloved. 
And beloved should give us some understanding of the intimacy, the covenant language with which God is directing this message to his people. I did a little bit of research on the word beloved. Interestingly enough, the book of the Bible that most uses the word beloved is the Song of Solomon. I also learned that the word beloved is used three times in the book of Ephesians. The first is Ephesians 1.16, where it talks about Christ as the beloved son of God. The other example is in Ephesians 6, verse 21. And it refers to Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Curiously enough, Tychicus is also referred to in the book of Colossians as the beloved and faithful minister. So for those of you expecting boy children in the near future, I present to you beloved Tychicus as a valid option, okay? But beloved is the word that is being used here in 5.1 to describe those who are God's children. Those who are God's children are those who have been adopted by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of that, they're beloved. They're being referred to in a covenant language. And this message is one that is difficult to hear, but it is presented to us because of our identity as adopted children of our Father God. As this verse begins, Paul says, therefore be imitators of God. Now Paul uses the word imitate in other contexts. He says, imitate these other churches. He even says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But this is the only time in scripture where we see be imitators of God. And this stands in stark contrast of, of what we see when Paul says, don't live like the Gentiles. He's taking us back to the standard, which is that of imitating God. The word imitate comes from a word that looks like mimic or a Greek word that I can't quite pronounce, but the idea is that it's a, a mimic of another image. For those of you old enough to remember what a mimeograph is, it was like a, a machine where you put a copy of a piece of paper on and it goes through a roller, and after the first copy, the master copy comes through, gradually each one that comes out comes out just a bit more distorted than the one before it. Anybody remember those machines? You don't have to raise your hand. You'll be dating yourself. Um, the idea that is seen in this imitate God is to be like he is. But to understand this, we need to understand, first of all, that this is a fundamental human problem. We are being asked to be like God. But if we go back to Genesis, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Our fundamental problem is we, as descendants of Adam, misunderstood willfully the instruction to be like God, and instead tried to make ourselves God-like. The distinction's important. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. The Genesis narrative recounts what God did with creating Adam, and then creating Eve. And look what it said here. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You see that? God created Adam in his image, and then Adam willfully, with the help of our accuser, of our spiritual adversary, took the instruction. He said, I'm not going to be like God. 
showing patience and forbearance and mercy. I'm going to be God-like. God is sovereign. I'd like to be sovereign too. God is the lawgiver. I'd also like to make my own rules. God is wise. I think I could have a wisdom like God's. And you see that that act of rebellion carried with it a lasting consequence. All of Adam's descendants would then be under that curse. And that's what it says. Adam fathered his own son in his likeness after his image. And so our problem here is that we, while bearing the image of God, fall under the curse of Adam. A copy that's distorted and marred in every way. This is particularly clear when we come to the topic of human sexuality. This is marring of God's design. Let's look at how scripture is conclusive for just a moment on the topic of God's design for marriage and for sexuality. If that image of God's plan had not been distorted, talking about sexuality wouldn't be uncomfortable because it would be understood to be permanent. I'm going to give you three words. They all begin with a letter P. The first is that scripture tells us that God's design for a relationship between a man and a woman is to be permanent. Matthew 19, verse 6, tells us, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Or some might be familiar with the translation used often at weddings from King James. But they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That was God's initial plan before the fall. God also, in his infinite wisdom, established that marriage and sexuality should be purposeful. An incredible passage that brings this to light is in the Old Testament book of Malachi, which we'll soon be preaching through together. Malachi 1.15, God asks in a question form, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking but godly offspring? So guard yourselves in spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. You see that purpose? The purpose is that God's spirit would be present in their union and that they would reproduce and bring forth godly offspring, a purpose statement. And the third P as we begin to look at God's initial plan is the fact that marriage and sexuality are intended to be pleasurable. Song of Solomon 7, 6 says, how beautiful and pleasant are you, O loved one, with all of your delights. But you see, because of the fall, because of that brokenness, the permanence and the purpose and the pleasure are lost and are marred and are ruined because of sin. And for that reason, we have to look back to the supremacy of Christ. If we're supposed to now imitate God, we need to understand that Adam marred that image. And so we go to Christ, the supremacy of Christ. There's two verses that talk about the image of Christ. He's the exact image. Hebrews 1.3 says, he, referring to Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. You see that? He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
No distortion. Christ came in human form to show us what it would be like for us to imitate him. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we need to approach all of these other verses with that in mind. In us, we bear the image of Adam. For that reason, he sent us Christ in his own exact image. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Verse 2 of Ephesians 5 gives us our, our walk statement again. How are we supposed to walk? Well, we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Now, the word that, that Paul uses here for love is important for us to keep in mind, right? It's not a love like eros, like an erotic, selfish love that is so often associated with our marred understanding of sexuality. The world, the flesh, see sexuality as what's for me. There's also Philadelphia love in scripture, which is, okay, well, we give something to our brother, something is given back to us. It's reciprocal in its nature. But the word for love here is a love that only Christ demonstrates with perfection. But it's the love that we are called to demonstrate. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. To demonstrate this, and this is an amazing passage for us to use as we undertake the work of evangelism is in 1 John chapter 4. If you would turn there with me, 1 John chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 10. Remember our brother John himself was an apostle, and the apostle himself is a gift to the church of Jesus Christ. God used John to give us these words to show us the love of Christ that we should imitate, that we should walk in. Beginning at verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the love of God shown to us through the Son. He sent him, expecting nothing in return, and gave himself for us to be the propitiation for our sins. And Paul takes us to that truth in that same verse, verse 2 of chapter 5. He says that Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In fact, the only sacrifice that would atone for our brokenness, the only sacrifice that would atone for our sins and allow us to be restored to God. With that in mind, we see the supremacy of Christ and we'll, we'll begin to undertake some of the difficult texts that lie ahead of us. Back in Ephesians 5, I'm going to read for you verses 3 through 6. Paul writes, But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place 
but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see, verse 4 is often misunderstood by the church. It says that sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness are out of place. But that doesn't mean that we don't discuss these realities in the church. These need to be discussed in the church. This morning, as we undertake this text, I want to present to you this idea that we need to be open and honest as we talk to our children about the topics of biblical sexuality, that we need to be drawn back to the supremacy of Christ and the authority of Scripture with regards to sexuality. The Bible is conclusive on this topic. If we look at the topics of our day, we look at topics like homosexuality. This is nothing new. Okay, the word comes back from Sodom in the days of Genesis. The idea of of lesbian, the word comes from a Greek island in 600 BC, and these themes are throughout Scripture. This is not new. The word of God is not silent on these topics. So we must teach them. Talking with a sister in our church about the word catechism, I learned that the word catechai is a word that talks about echoing. Echoing back something that's been taught. Brother Rob mentioned a time in the church where only psalms were available because the gospel and the epistles hadn't been written. During the Reformation, Gutenberg was just getting the printing press running and, and churches and the average person didn't have a Bible in their hands, so a catechism became a way to affirm the doctrine that was being taught. And it was taught in a way that it was like an, an echo. You would ask a question, and someone would respond back. The idea is that these confessional communities would come across and do oral teaching within the church. That question and answer allows us to affirm what it is we understand to be true from God's word. A perfect example, one that most of us know is from the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that idea of, of catechism is an interesting one. The world might say, oh, well, a catechism, that's just, that's just brainwashing. That's the, the Christians telling each other rules, right? I'll admit, it might be brainwashing, but it's only brainwashing because first our hearts have been washed. And then God tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So if that's brainwashing, bring it on. I'd also like to share with you today that as you leave the sanctuary, the ushers will be ushing and will put in your hand a, that's what they do, right? Usher, ushing. They're going to put in your hand an amazing book. This is a booklet that we'd like to share with every um, adult, particularly the, um, those who might go through this with their children. This is a, a book written by a pastor in Escondido called The New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. Test everything in light of scripture, brothers but you'll find that there's citations in this book that help us go back to scripture on the topics of sexuality. 
One question that I'll give you an example is question number 15 from this little booklet, and it says, does God permit same-sex marriage? Answer, absolutely not. God ordained marriage only between a man and a woman for life. Governments do not have the authority to change marriage into something contrary to what God instituted at creation. So this concept of, of catechism, of echoing back what God tells us in Scripture is useful. So I'll refer to that a few times throughout this sermon, but by God's grace, may this be a tool that is useful to you as you shepherd your young people and as you share the truth of Scripture unashamedly with those who you might encounter. I'll also, as we delve into this topic, point out that sexual sins are different in some ways than other sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sins, brothers and sisters, result in deep scars, lasting consequences, and relational devastation. The world recognizes this, and the Bible and God and his perfect plan desires to protect us from these things. But these things are needful for us to discuss. As we look again at verses 3, 4, and 5, I want to point out to you that there's three different triads. Sometimes when Paul goes through his list of things, we get a little bit lost, right? There's a lot in there. Let's look at this together. There's three different triads of words for the note takers. Verse 3 says, but sexual immorality, number one, and all impurity, number two, or covetous must not be named among you. We got those three? Then the next verse, verse four says, but let there be no filthiness, number one, nor foolish talk, two, nor crude joking, three. Okay? And then this gets a lot easier because if we go to verse five, we'll notice that the third triad here repeats itself. Paul says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, a kingdom of Christ and God. So again, we'll start out with the first three. Repeated in that third triad, it is sexually immoral, impure, and covetous. What does all this mean? The word sexual morality actually never appears in the Bible. It tells us to avoid sexual morality, but what does it tell us What's the opposite there of, of immorality? What's moral? What is God's design? So we know that God's design is for marriage to be permanent and purposeful and, and pleasant. But we get a number of definitions of what it is that we are supposed to avoid. A couple that are under this umbrella of sexual immorality that are needful for us to mention, first and foremost, is the topic of pornography. Pornography is destructive, it is addictive, and it perverts God's design for our thought life. If you would, turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll give a read-through of verses 24 and 25. Paul says, Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, creator, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You see, that is by very definition explaining to us that pornography is a form of idolatry. It is instead putting, of putting our eyes on God who is the creator, instead of putting our eyes on Christ who is the author and perfecter of our faith, we're putting our eyes on an image that's inappropriate and takes our mind to places that scripture clearly calls out as sinful. Now you'll notice with these, these triads that I gave you, the sexually immoral, the impure, and the covetous, those are, are sins of the body and of the heart. And that second set are sins of the mouth, filthiness, crude talking, coarse jesting. As we look at this, this first group of things that are sexually immoral, besides pornography, we also have a clear explanation of the sin of lust. Jesus, in chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 27 through 30, said, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Those are convicting words that help us understand the reality of our sinful hearts. Jesus says, to think it, to let it go through your mind, to contemplate it in your heart, that lust is the same as committing the act of adultery. So church, let's be clear that pornography or lustful thoughts are treated categorically the same as an offense to our holy God. It's not, oh, this doesn't affect anybody else. Nobody else has to know this. No, Christ's words are clear. Christ also speaks in that very same passage about adultery. And if we go to Romans chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, we get another one of Paul's lists that help us understand also the biblical stance on the sin of homosexuality. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty inclusive list. You caught homosexuality in there? Did you catch a lot of other things too? And such were some of us. In chapter 1 of Romans, homosexuality is also call, clearly called out. Verse 27 and 28 of Romans, and it says, backing up, sorry, 26, for this reason God gave them dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We're clear on what scripture says. There's more to this that we'll understand because our God is a gracious God. Our God is a God who redeems us, who desires to save us and desires to free us from our bondage to sin. 
But let's be clear on what this sin is. It is not okay. It is not normal. It is not something that, that God desires in the life of one, a man or a woman who follow after him. Moving on just a bit from that heavy topic of sexual immorality, we, we have the topic of impurity. That's the second one that we notice in that first triad, right? What is this impurity that is spoken of? Curiously enough, the word impurity, as it comes to this, is, is not used with great frequency in Scripture, but one example that I think is noteworthy is in the book of Ezra. Ezra, of course, is during the period of time. They're coming out of Babylon. They're going back. They're re-inhabiting the city of Jerusalem. And they've been surrounded by all the nations around them. And, and look what God says to his people. Ezra 9, verses 10 through 12. It says, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it, it is a land impure with the impurity of peoples, and the lands with their abominations that they have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Verse 12, Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. This passage is about intermarriage, not racial intermarriage, but interfaith marriage. One form of, of sexual impurity, of, of impurity that contaminates the human heart is the idea that a follower of Jesus Christ can find themselves in a relationship with one who is not. That's what the book of, of Ezra is saying there. The impurity, the land is defiled. The, these idolaters don't give your daughters to marry them. Don't give your sons to marry them. Young people at Pacific Hope, don't fall for the lie of missionary dating. You are not so strong in your faith that you can come alongside somebody else and bring him or her to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Only God can do that. Your instruction is purity. Your instruction is walk away. Seek the Lord that he would bring you a suitable companion, equally yoked as a follower of Jesus Christ. Also on the topic of impurity, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, a good verse for us to keep in mind. It's simple. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The final word in this triad, sexually immoral, impure, and covetous, is the word covetous. And this, in the context that we see it, is also related to sexual purity. Exodus 20, verse 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Not the donkey, not the wife, not the husband, not covet. Be content with that which God has given you, that which God has assigned you. We're going to come back to that because that's an important anecdote to this attitude of covetousness. Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 18, talk about contentment and exclusiveness of what God designed for the marriage relationship to be. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
So we're clear on just a little bit of what scripture says about sexual immorality and and impurity and covetousness. But let's think through this covetousness thing for just a second. There's a flip side to this covetousness. That is, just as our society tells us that, that we can live however we want with, in terms of, of understanding sexuality, it also tells us that we should build our lives so that we are coveted. Have a coveted car, have a coveted house, have a coveted body, right? First Timothy 2 verses 9 and 10, says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So not only are we not to covet, but we're also not to make ourselves to be coveted. Parents, dress your young ladies with modesty. Young ladies, dress yourselves with modesty. And older ladies, you should do the same. <clears throat> I won't even mention the lady at the beach the other day. Um, you know what I'm talking about. We're called to live in a way that is pure, free from sexual immorality, free from impurity, free from covetous. But wait, this gets harder. It gets harder. It gets harder because not only are these sins of the, of the heart found in each and every one of us, not only are these sins in the body, perhaps some that we have ourselves suffered self-inflicted injuries from, but verse four goes on just a bit further and it, it warns us that sexual thinking must also not invade our speech. It says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Filthiness, obscene, sexual jokes, okay? Sexual jokes are the theme of the day, double meaning. You can't even turn on the TV without an innuendo. Do we laugh at these, church? We chuckle at these? We crack these ourselves, right? I want to, for the sake of uh, my, my brothers, point out that the NASB translation of this comes out just a bit differently. You'll notice that it says, there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather a giving of thanks. Thankfully, we're using ESV, so silly talk is still permitted this morning. And in that light, I wanted to lighten up just a little bit and ask you, what time of day did God create Adam? just before Eve. So there you go. Silly talk, right? But what scripture is talking about in this is this triad, this triad of words that we should not use. We should not have anything that is obscene coming out of our mouth. The next statement is foolish talk. Again, NASB gives us silly, right? But if we go back to the Greek, it's moro and logia, moronic words. I believe from this pulpit before, we've heard the term puny minds. Okay, that's what's being described here, Mormonic words. Jokes about sexuality are cheap and easy, right? They're abundant, but that's why we go back to Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor by all. This is something sacred. This is something that God has created to be set apart. Let us not make jokes about it. These things are out of place. The tail end of verse 4 
brings us to a really interesting anecdote to all of this. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Throughout Paul's writings, in the book of Ephesians, for example, we get two different extremes. We get, don't walk in the darkness as the Gentiles do, but instead walk in light. You used to be dead, but now you're alive. You used to be far off, but now you've been brought near. But look what Paul gives us as this opposing thing to filthy thinking, to sinful living, to sexual sin. It's thankfulness. What an interesting remedy. Thankfulness. When it comes to really looking at the heart of the issue, at our hearts, at our sinful hearts, it is saying, I want something different than what God has prescribed for my life. I'm not content with my own needs being met, so I'm going to go outside of the covenant marriage. I am not content with what God has given me, so I'm going to look at these things on the internet. I am not content with my singleness, the position in which God has given me. All of those things lead our hearts straight back to those sexual sins. Paul tells us that it's, let there instead be thanksgiving. We'll come back to that because that's key in this text. It's not just a passing comment that he sort of adds in at the list of these heavy things. It's part of the remedy. But that's not all. Verse five of chapter five here is, is actually the hardest text today. I thought it was gonna be awkward to talk to you about sexuality this morning, but let me tell you, this verse is the hard one. Look at what it says. Paul says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, a kingdom of Christ and God. That's hard to preach. That's hard to, to stand up and say. The catechism book that you'll be given today has as, as question number 33 this question. Question, can those be saved who do not turn to God from their unholy desires and are unrepentant of their sexual ways? Answer, by no means. Scripture tells us that no sexually immoral person, no adulterer, no fornicator will inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, we can all go home. We're done. We are disqualified. We are cut off. We're crushed. There is no one in this room that is not guilty of that. The Bible is conclusive. Marriage and its design are, are exclusive. If we have violated that in any way, we're far off. But praise God that his gospel is inclusive. Such were some of you. Romans 6, verses 10 through 14. For the death he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no, not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. We're under grace. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient to bring about a washing. A renewing of our minds. The ability to fight sin. For those of you who feel the, the stinging indictment of, of what is being said and what scripture tells us, let me give you an assurance that if you feel that sting, the spirit of the living God is active in your life. I love the fact that we sang last week, Come Thou Fount, and, and the words resonate in my mind. His goodness, like a fetter, we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Bind my wandering heart to thee. You see, if you have been understanding of what Christ has done for you, you have asked for Christ's forgiveness in your life and you have repented and turned to him, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And then you'll feel the conviction of sin. The battle against the sins in our heart and our mind is ongoing. Our need for repentance is daily. But we feel that conviction, rest assured. Because if it wasn't for his active grace in our lives, we wouldn't be prone to wander. We'd be prone to run. We would not come back to our Savior, mindful of how needful we are of him. We would not be convicted of our sin. We would rather celebrate it. If these words are heavy and hard, take heart. That is the spirit of God who is grieved in your life. Run back to Jesus. He's that fetter that binds you to him. The remedy for all of this, saints, is to understand that our sanctification is ongoing. The progress seems slow sometimes. The, the temptations to fall back into the same sins that we thought we dealt with happens again. But run to Jesus. Look to the cross. Continue knowing that one day, you'll be glorified. Fight the fight. Walk towards him. Understand that we're called to a life of repentance. It is not a turn to Christ and all of a sudden you're a saint perfected and like him. The need for repentance is daily. The combating of sexual thoughts and sins in our life is something that we daily need to give over to Christ. But for us as believers, Paul is clear here that the ultimate remedy as we come to Christ is for thanksgiving. Be thankful for the position that we find ourselves in. Be thankful for the grace that we have received through Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would turn with me there. Looking at the verse we saw earlier, starting at verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers 
will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. What Christ has done, we were in this list, it's not an exhaustive list, but every sin, every offense set up against God puts us in that category where he, we would be under his wrath. Paul makes that perfectly clear in verse six of the same passage that we're looking at, Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The empty words are, are all around us. Our phones, our music, our media all tell us that our decisions on how we live, our decisions on our sexual conduct are up to us. We're free to choose. But we're not. And because of that, every man, woman, and child will be under the wrath of God if not for the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what all of this book of Ephesians has been telling us all along. We were dead. We were far off. We were enemies. But he has adopted us and brought us near. His grace is more. I would encourage you this morning, as you've been prayed for and you continue to be prayed for, his grace is more. The sexual sins that may have been a part of your life will leave lasting scars, deep consequences. Your enemy, the accuser, would seek to continue to confuse and accuse you. But his grace is more. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been made new. And we've been brought near. It's all through Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ that we may imitate him and walk in that same love. It's worth recapping from Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Part of this doxology, this is what the sinner has in view. This is the supremacy of Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Praise God. Through his blood, we have redemption. We have fresh start after fresh start. We have been given ultimately victory over our sin through Christ Jesus and placed into a covenant community where we care for one another, where we come alongside one another and we hold one another accountable to these things. May God give you comfort in knowing of the grace available to you through Jesus Christ. If you have the desire to speak with any of the, the elders and pray with us, we'd 
it would be our joy to, to pray with you and for you as the Lord brings about healing from some of the scars caused by sexual sin. Our desire is to be a body of believers that are characterized by holiness. That's what this text is all about. Walk as Christ walked. Be imitators of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that while we have all fallen short of the glory of God, you have come in human form to give your life so that we might call on your name for salvation and for forgiveness. God, I pray that we be mindful of all that you have done for us. Our salvation is not because of our own merits. God, as hard as it is to be reminded of our own sin, may it constantly remind us of your grace, which is greater still, of your mercy, which is immeasurable and lavished upon us. God, would you work in each of our lives that you would restore us if we find ourselves in patterns of, of sin? Would you protect our, our young people, Lord God, from the lies of the world and the, their own sinful hearts, Lord God, that they would be raised up to be sanctified and, and set apart and pure for your service? and for your glory. God, we desire that as a church, we would be a city on a hill and that our holiness would be seen in our conduct in every way. The things that come out of our mouth, the meditations of our heart may it all be found acceptable to you through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. It's in him, his name that we pray. Amen.